Let me start by saying Zeninchenzi is a weird guy. Or maybe I should say he was a weird guy. But it turns out those weird traits only seemed weird when you're an inexperienced high school student and are actually pretty desirable qualities like spontaneity, work ethic, and a pretty below average sense of insecurity. It's all these things that made Zenin the person he is today, a PhD graduate and kind of an all-around good guy. So thanks for coming, Zenin. Uh, my first guest ever. Here we are. Hey, man, that's very, uh, I like it. Starting off to a bang here. I'm liking it. And uh, now he's starting on to his next stage of his life, which is also in the Southern Hemisphere. Instead of New Zealand, it is now South Africa. Zenin, you, you've been doing science mm. basically since high school in some capacity. Yeah, I guess like, you know, you kind of like, when do you even in elementary school, when do you first have science class even? Grade five? Grade four? I couldn't even say yes. I don't remember science until grade seven. I remember social studies, yeah. but like, I don't think we had science. Like, I, yes, maybe grade seven yeah. was like science. That was the first time I remember being introduced formally to like test tubes. Sure, yeah. Grade Beakers seven. and... We learned the Erlenmeyer flask. The oh, flask. yeah, yeah. And how do, you got to have two hands on it at all times because people are breaking them. And But yeah, so I think science, yeah. So call it grade seven. So how old are you in grade seven? Like 12? Yeah. I'm 30 now. So I've been doing science longer than I have not been doing science. Have you always been doing it actively? I Like I think for, and I would speak for myself as well, I've been doing it very passively and sure. kind of without knowing it. Sure. But you've, you've consciously been doing science certainly since you chose your undergrad at SMU. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, so actively, I mean, you have to look at, because, like, we, we were in um, advanced physics together with, right. with Mr. Goss. So I, I was only in regular physics. You were only in regular physics? Yeah, yeah. Ah, lame. Yeah. Why did I think you, yeah, you just carry yourself as a guy who does advanced physics. I was in some advanced classes. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so I, I don't think you really actively do science until, um, yeah, you're in, you're in university and you start kind of doing, I don't know, experiments maybe is the first thing. So you're in, um, you know, your biology class or your chemistry class or um, your physics or whatever it is, and they kind of teach you about the scientific method and, okay, so we're going to do this experiment. And I remember one of the first experiments was like titration or whatever, where you've yeah. got, uh, you know, drip this solution into another liquid and then the exact moment that it becomes purple or whatever, like, and that's science, you know? And so that type of stuff, I guess you start early, but, like, that's pretty boring. It's funny you say that because titration was one of the things I found most interesting. Oh, true. I was just like, okay, I'm going to drop literally one drop at a time, and then all of a sudden one more drop, and it's like, oh, my God, it's yeah, changed. Yeah, it's purple now. Like, When you chose your science undergrad, mm. which was you did an undergrad and was it biology? It was biology, yeah. I know when I picked my university degree, it wasn't because it was something I was super into. It was just kind of the one that made the most sense at the time. Uh, when you picked biology, was it the sensible option or was it something you were really excited about? So yeah, when I left, yeah, when I left QE, I was like, okay, I want to, I want to do something in science. And my first year, I took physics, chemistry, and biology, and then um, didn't really like the university version of chemistry and physics. You know, it was a lot harder. You know, like, yeah. forget about the, the time. Remember back in the day when you looked at an atom and they told you, like, oh, it's got the little shells around it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like a sun with, you know, planets that go around it. I was good at chemistry back then. You know what I mean? I was good at chemistry. And then they're like, oh, yeah, all that shit is uh, it's, it's fake. I've, I've still struggled with those things because it's, it's like, well, 
Should we teach it? Why do you even teach the kids? Yeah. You can't even say it's like a good analogy or anything because it's not, nothing builds off. No. Uh, Later on in physics, you don't just, you know, develop that model further. You scrap it all together and then do the proper one. It's like a probability cloud. There's like a 95% chance that it exists within this elliptical thing. And you're like, okay, but why'd you do a whole year teaching me it was something else? Um, but anyway, to get back to the, the point, instead of talking about Niels Bohr uh, and his model and how it's incorrect, quantum. Like, who cares? Quantum? They put quantum in there, man, and I was just done. I was like, I don't get this stuff anymore. Biology, animals don't live in quantum yeah, fields. Just, they are where they are. You know what I mean? Like, the, I can pick the animal up, and, like, theoretically, you could say, like, well, did you really pick it up? But, yeah, yeah, I picked it up. Yeah. Man. Like, I observed it. I observed its behavior. Um so yeah, that's what that's what kind of turned me on about biology was that um, you know uh, you, you could you could hold it. it was concrete you know it wasn't wasn't this abstract concept. Sure, there are concepts and theories in biology that are more abstract, but to answer those questions, you have to grab and touch and hold animals, right? So what was in your mind at that time where you're like, should I be actually doing a bachelor of science looking at biology, or should I be doing this other thing? Okay. So first year I was, I was pretty stoked. Like I went through, went through science, did the sciences, and then I found the sciences that I didn't like. And then biology was one of the ones that was still, I I like doing this. Uh, And then I went in my second year and in my second year, I, you know, was maybe drinking too much uh, and didn't, uh, I didn't pick my courses on time. And so I wasn't able, and it's like, you know, for a science degree, like you got to have these courses done in second year. And I didn't, I, I was too late. I didn't get into the basic biology classes that I needed. And so in second year, I kind of pivoted over to psychology. I was like, okay, well, psychology is pretty cool. And then for about, I don't know, a year and a half, two, two years, I was doing uh, a psychology. And I was like, this is really cool. And, and so I stopped kind of, I was still doing biology, but my focus had kind of moved over um, into psych, into humans. Because you didn't pick your courses on time. Exactly, because I was hungover or something like that and didn't didn't pick the courses in time. So then I had a two-year experience or a year-and-a-half experience of like, okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do psychology. Um, and then it took me about two years to learn that um, humans lie to you. And that just kind of shattered my whole idea of, of doing psychology because here you are and you're, you know, you want to study humans or like, especially if you want to help them, yeah. you know, if you want to help people get over their problems or, or whatever it is, you want to help humans, uh, whether they're, you know, conscious of it or not, they lie to you. And so it took me a couple of years to figure out that humans lie. Yeah. And then that, like I said, kind of shattered it. And then I went back to biology because the animal doesn't lie to you. Not uh, consciously, I don't think. No, like if you catch an animal, the only thing it wants to do is to be released, right? Yeah. So it's 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 not it's it, it has no facades. It's not uh, perhaps playing dead might fall into the yeah, deception category. Sure, but I could still like stick a probe inside of it and get an idea of what its body temperature is. Like you can't hide that from me. Right. You know? You've had your revelation of like, okay, psych, I can't stick with. What year was that into your undergrad? So that was, uh, I think, at the end of my third year. Five or six years to do. Finish? I I did I did five years at St. Mary's, so I got I came out with a, a double major in biology and psychology. So yeah. In hindsight, do you regret taking that unintended detour no. into psychology? Uh, no, no, I'm, oh, I'm stoked uh, because I think psychology is one of these things that um, you know you might not or I wasn't able to make a living off of it, but yeah. I I think that I'm a better social human 
because I've studied a little bit of psychology and understand people's motivations and, you know, just how to, how to be an empathetic person and, and understand that, you know, people's worlds are different than yours. And so I think just as a, as a human, psychology right. was, was super beneficial for me. I think it's tough going into university straight out of high school, uh, which is what I did. And I think you did as well. No, I just went right into it. I mean, for most students, you basically have no life experience. Mm. So what are you basing this $50,000 life decision on? Uh, I mean, college is a pretty expensive place if you're trying to find yourself. That's the thing. Regardless of the, um, the degree that you're, you're doing, I think first year of university is the year that you learn how to study and learn again. What worked for you in high school now no longer works, you know. So for me, at least, uh, that first year of university was like, okay, this is how I have to succeed. This is how I have to study. If I want to do well, I have to change my learning patterns, right? Yeah. And so that can be challenging. And I think that's part of the reason that you have such high attrition rate for students coming in that first year. You just have to, you have to look at universities as not, they're not this, you know, ivory tower where higher learning happens and there's scrolls and textbooks and, you know, libraries. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a business. And so, which is, you know, the shitty thing about it, but as long as you, as long as you look at it that way, then. The naivety, I think, is what gets a lot of students. Yeah. Like, oh no, it's like, I'm, my professors are, they want to see me succeed. Maybe. But you shouldn't assume that. No. So that's, I think, uh, one of the things that maybe would have helped me is like, okay, if I'm going to get like an experience that is valuable, I've got to work to make that happen. But I think, yeah, I think what you're talking about, like this naivety of people coming into university, it's like they expect everything to be like Harry Potter. You know, I'm going into Hogwarts and it's lovely and I'm wearing robes and it's just like, nah. Yeah, nah. It's different. So then you kept doing more school. Yeah. So did you do a master's too? I did, yeah. Did you do that in Canada? I did. I did that at the uh, at the University of Winnipeg. Yeah. So I guess like to start it off, it doesn't make sense if we talk about masters before um, honors. But so like for my honors at uh, at St. Mary's, I looked at BATS. Um, sorry, looked, honors, which is separate from a undergrad. Yeah. So honors is kind of like you have to get certain grades, and then you're allowed to go do an honors project. And an honors project project is basically a, a one year research project. You write a thesis, you defend it, you do all of the things that you would. You say like a junior PhD? It would be like a junior master's. Okay. It would be like advanced undergrad. You know what I mean? Like you're still an undergrad, but you're an honors student now because you've created, you know, a, a piece of science. Not necessarily like the strongest piece of work, but it at least teaches you how you're going to do if you continue with academia moving forward. So, yeah, I caught some bats and I looked at um, the fleas and mites and stuff that they had on them and then looked if there was a difference between male and female bats. So you mean you literally just caught bats and then yes. took tweezers or something and picked things off? So like you catch a bat, right, and then you hold it in front of your face and it's got its tummy in front of you and then you like, and you blow and you part their fur and then the, the fleas and stuff don't like that and they jump out and then with little tweezers you collect each one of yeah. these little fleas and then they got some mites on their wings and you pick all those off and you go okay bat 345 had 16 ectoparasites and these are what they were so you do that like 300 times and then you got a good sample size and then you look and you do some math and you say oh yeah wouldn't you know females had <clears throat> more ectoparasites on them than males did and then you can relate that back to the females during the time when we were catching them they live in big colonies of like 300 yeah. whereas the males are by themselves so you'd imagine if you live with 300 of your homies they're going to be really dirty they're going to have lots of ectoparasites ectoparasites are going to be all around there fleas ticks mites all that but if you're a male living all by yourself you've got more energy to you know clean yourself and keep your stuff nice and 
tidy. And so we found like very, very convincingly that, yeah, males had uh, fewer ectoparasites than females. The main reason being colony size. Yeah, basically the behavior. So that's like a behavioral thing that's different at that time of year that you can quantify in ectoparasites. So what actually brought you to Winnipeg in the first place uh, to do your master's? How did you settle on that university? For me, and it's different for a lot of people, but for me, um, I was hoping to just do whatever I could. I, I knew I wanted to do academia, and so at this point, you know, you, you know, beggars can't be choosers type sure. of thing. And so I think I sent out, shoot, I want to say like 20 or 30 emails to people across the country saying, like, here I am, this is who I am, this is what you do, this is what I think we can do together. And of those 30, um, three I think got back to me in 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 earnest, and so I had three opportunities. Uh, one was working on ground squirrels in the prairies. One was working on seabirds uh, on the east coast, and the other one was working on bats in Winnipeg. And at that time in my life, I had just read a whole bunch of literature on bats. I knew how to catch bats, and so I figured the learning curve would be a lot, uh, you know, shallower yeah. if I were to continue with bats. So I said, "Oh shit!" Like, guess I'm going to Winnipeg. Because the you know, opportunity was there and I didn't have to learn a whole new system. So one thing I know I would have been intimidated by is, uh, A, moving to a city where I, I don't know anyone, but also leaving everything that's familiar. So how did you kind of, um, how did you get around that in uh, your decision to move to Winnipeg? So the bat, the bat community, the academic bat community, as you can imagine, is relatively small um, compared to other things, you know, uh, other, other groups of animals. Like and cows. Like cows or uh, like cats or I don't know, like uh, deer or something yeah. like that, you know. And so the, the bat nerds all kind of know each other. And so my supervisor uh, knew the guy who was in Winnipeg. Because of that, um, he was able to vouch for me. And then he was not able to vouch for me, but also able to vouch Craig to me. So Craig's a great guy and, you know, you, you'll get along great with him. You knew him and stuff like that. So that was really, um, you know, that was, that was easy to get into because the personal aspect of it was there. We're, we're both East Coasters and grew up on the East Coast. And that was the first time I ever left Nova Scotia for any amount of time. So I was, I remember Mike being on the plane and getting into Manitoba and just getting outside of Winnipeg and just being so relieved that there were trees. Yeah. I didn't think that there were trees in Manitoba. I thought I just yeah, thought it was a prairie. I thought it was and so I saw these trees and I was like, I was very hungover, but I was like, ah, oh, like this is okay, it's not gonna be yeah. so bad. Like there are trees here. When you heard the opportunity in Winnipeg was based around bats, did you really know you were going there right away? Or did you seriously consider any of the other two possibilities? Not, yeah, no, nah, like the, the thing that BATS had going was that there was a bit of money. I knew that the supervisor and I could vibe, and I knew the study species, yeah. and I didn't have those assurances in those other two places. So yeah. put it this way, there were, uh, there were fewer unknowns going to Winnipeg. Yeah, uh, just, you know, for that equation, yeah. right? And for me, like my life and where I was living d didn't even go into that equation. This sentence is kind of where... Uh, those factors I mentioned at the start of the podcast uh, come in to influence your behavior. For most people, and myself included, I would say that these you know, little factors like where you live, who you know, uh, those kind of things really make a difference. But what I'm hearing is they don't really factor into your equation at all. No, not really. When you landed in Winnipeg, you got you know, your work connections and everything sorted out. But in terms of housing, uh, errands and all those things, 
you just figured you'd pick it up as you go along. Oh, I'll figure it out. The uh, the appeal of staying home was outweighed by uh, the appeal of, of doing good work. And, yeah. you know, um, so... Meaningful to you as well. well yeah, well, that's yeah. the thing. Like, you know, at, at that point in my life, and now we're talking, you know, fifth year, so I'd have been, I think I was maybe 23 yeah. when I went to Winnipeg, something like that. When I was 23, it was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. Like I'm, I'm do like science. That was fun. Like it was my first year because I didn't really know what science, like field biology or ecology or like, you know, being an academic biologist. Like, what does that even mean? Like, I, I didn't even know what that was until my fourth year of university, and I went to a class, behavioral ecology, with Professor Colleen Barber, and she opened my eyes and was like, "Yeah, like this is a job that you can do. You can go. You can study animals." in the off season and then if you're you know if if you're really really good and you become a professor somewhere then you can teach during the school year and up until that point I'm you know 21 22 at that point like I didn't even know that that was an option I knew I wanted to work with animals but when we when we were growing up you know what do you do to work with animals you work at a zoo or you're a vet and I knew I didn't want to work with uh, sick animals I want to work with healthy animals really Mike it's only been 2 years that I like even this kind of idea of a job, it like kind of crystallized. So at that point, I was, I was, I, I need to make this happen. Um, and I mean, like the amount of couches that I lived on in Winnipeg for that first year, because I just didn't have a house, didn't have anywhere to live, didn't matter. I was like living in a tent up in northern Manitoba. They're like, okay, go up and do some science up there, and then you'll figure out, you know, your your class. I, I think I got there in like May, something like that, and classes started in September. You know, master's classes. And so basically for that summer, I just lived in a tent up in northern Manitoba catching bats and not worrying about where I was actually going to live. And it just so happened, like serendipitously, that two people that I went to St. Mary's with got positions in Winnipeg and had an extra room. Whether, yeah, whether it's confidence, whether it's just stubbornness, whether it's blind luck, I don't know what it is. I, I mean, I think it's all those things, but... The thing that I'm starting to realize more and more is like, as you're growing up, you hear a lot, oh, you got to plan ahead. Whether yeah. it's for retirement, sure. save your money, um, go to school and get an education, do things that'll help you in the future today. Mm -hmm. And I think that's hammered in a little too strongly. I, I think I'd agree with you, yeah. Like, And I think you're a perfect example of the opposite. You know, sometimes it's important to just be like, okay, like, what do I need to do today mm. to do the thing I need to do tomorrow? Sure. I, yeah, no, you're right. I, I, and, and so maybe that's just uh, my own naivety that makes it easier for me to do these things because I don't really think about them. And maybe it's, you know, because I am who I am and I, I like to, I'm a happy guy and I try to just pop myself into places and things work out for me. So yeah. that, that hasn't, that mindset and my worldview on that hasn't really had any major blows to it. It's always worked that everywhere. Theory, that theory of life so far, so yeah, good. Yeah, it's always worked for me. Like, whether I'm in, yeah, whether I'm in Belize, Costa Rica, like, New Zealand, in Manitoba, like, it's always pretty much worked. If you go in and be friendly, every, everything kind of works out. Yeah. And that, that hasn't really been challenged for me. So your system of uh, life, so far, so good, is really just focused on what you're working at the time and what's best then, and then moving on to the next thing that is best next so you're not really concerned about if i'm hearing you correctly things like the city you're living in maybe your social circle or networking uh, and just looking at the next best opportunity so speaking of that uh you finished your master's in winnipeg so did you do your phd basically directly after yeah 
So at the end of, at the end of Winnipeg, uh, after the Masters was done, um, I had the opportunity to go. And so like the network thing, I disagree. Like networking is a huge, huge part of, of what I do. And the, re- consciously. Like, the re- consciously, absolutely. Like going into conferences with goals, yep. being like, okay, uh, I know my master's is about to end in a year. So yeah, I need to meet people and make connections and have projects lined up. And I know that these people are going to be there. And then it's just like in anything, like networking is, is, is massively important. Yeah. And so that part was always there, um, going to conferences and, and, and being able to, you know, like a lot of biologists, you know, that I've, yeah, you know, been around, a bunch of nerds. And like, they're, they're a bunch of nerds oftentimes. In the classical sense. In the classical sense, like, hmm, I can't come out. I'm working yeah, on this or whatever it is, you know, because everybody goes about their way the, the way they want to, right? Um, but what I'm, what I'm trying to impart is that there's not a lot of people who will be getting drunk like till four in the morning the night before their talk at this international conference with some of like the luminaries in the field. Yeah. And then, you know, who do, who do they remember afterwards? Oh, it's you the know? guy they got drunk with at 4 a.m. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and, and so I've always, you know, that's that's kind of been my niche or an easy niche for me to fill. Yeah. Um, because in biology, or at least in my field, in behavioral ecology, there's, you know, there's some of them, but there's, there's it's, uh, it's bereft of, uh, of, of drunks. Doing your Ph.D. in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, was that a result of networking, or I guess just tell me some of the factors that brought you to New Zealand? Totally. So, um, I uh, when I when I finished my master's, I got um, a scholarship uh, from Canada to do a PhD, and that was meant to be uh, out of the University of Regina. Can you the, I've never heard of that before. When you say you got a scholarship from Canada to do a PhD, yeah. Like, oh, so it's like so Canada's got uh, it's called NSERC, so it's like the National Science and Engineering Research council so it's like the federal uh, granting body that gives scholarships out they've got a, an annual budget of 1.1 billion dollars and they give scholarships to good um, science engineering research uh, people to either give them uh, scholarships for their masters their honors their phd or their postdoc so I got one of those. I was lucky enough to get one of those uh, with a guy at the University of Regina, Mark Brigham, who ended up being my one of my co-supervisors in, yeah. in Auckland. Um, and so Mark and I had this um, project that we wanted to work on uh, in New Zealand. And was this a Canadian-based project or a New Zealand-based project? Uh, it was going to be based out of Regina. So I had to, in order to accept that scholarship, I had to stay in Canada for six months of every year which would have made it really challenging to yeah. do the type of work that I wanted to. Um, and so when I got the, the notice that we'd, that we'd gotten it, um, Mark said, hey, look, the guy that you want to work with, uh, Stuart Parsons the, from, from New Zealand, he's going to be in Belize in three weeks' time. I'm going to be in Belize too. All these people, a spot just opened up. And serendipitously, I was like, okay. And I was like, mom and dad, they had no money. Mom, dad, I need some money to go to Belize. And they're like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so I went to Belize and I met Stuart there and we designed this project. And, and then, yeah, maybe half a year later, I was going to New Zealand to work with him. So this meant you were in New Zealand now for what, three to six months of the year or something? For 12 months of the year. So now. So how then were you able to keep that scholarship? No, so I had to decline a $105,000 scholarship. Oh my God. To, to, right? 
to take up uh, a lesser scholarship, uh, but I get to stay in New Zealand for the whole time. So this, I mean, the same kind of thing I was talking about before. I feel like a lot of people would be more inclined to take that $105,000 regardless of where they had to study, but you wanted to go to New Zealand, so you rejected the... uh money it's yeah like, and for me it was like thirty thousand bucks and i just mike you gotta remember i just done two winters in winnipeg in manitoba as a coastal kid and so you couldn't pay me enough to do another four years in regina you know like thirty thousand dollars in the difference like i think i i think you'd have to pump it up a little bit also more you like seeing new places oh and i just i didn't want to be in a flat white place again for another yeah. four years you know now from start to finish how long were you in new zealand in Auckland? Um, New Zealand, in New Zealand, it was about four years in total. As someone who has not done a honors or a master's thesis or a PhD, uh, what's the difference between them all? How different was your PhD compared to the other two? I think the biggest difference um, in between, and I think this is relatively uh, common for, for most people doing PhDs who've done uh, master's and honors, the, the biggest difference is that the, um, everything is you. So it, you're, you're no longer able to pass the buck and say, oh, that wasn't my decision, that was my supervisor's decision, or that was my higher up or whatever. So every, every decision that you make, whether good, bad, or indifferent, is, is on you. So it's, it's really on you whether you sink uh, or if you swim. I think that's where PhD students also have a lot of strife that comes out of it because you're basically in charge of this, you know, four years and you make this book or this thesis, right? Yeah. And because it's all you and this book is all you, you can find yourself putting your own kind of self-value and self-worth into this piece of writing, oh, yeah. which is totally... I can't imagine how bad that would feel to have that uh, thesis pulled apart. Yeah. Oh my God. Like the amount of times that like I've been in the woods and just have gotten real down on myself because I hadn't caught a fucking bat in three weeks, yeah. you know, and I'm out in the woods and there's nothing, there's eight people out in the woods with me, like who, who live there. They're not really working with me. It's just me. And so, yeah, you don't catch a bat for three weeks and you're like, what the hell am I doing here? And so you can get, you can find yourself getting down on yourself, but you realize like, hey, no, like this, this thesis isn't me and I'm not this thesis, right? Sure. But that can be, uh, I think, relatively difficult for uh, PhD students to kind of unwind. But yeah, I think being solo is, is the biggest difference. So with your vast array of different types of education, what single skill, if you could download any into your head, matrix style, sure. uh, would have helped you the most throughout your entire uh, kind of career to date? Oh man, it would be, uh, it'd be stats. I was kind of expecting stats. Like yeah. that's, is that, that's literally part of all science. Yeah, man. It's like, it, it's basically, you remember when you were taking, you know, um, even I, like, I took a couple of stats courses yeah. in university and it seems so, uh, I mean, I know it's, it feels like sacrilege to say it, but useless. Yeah. And then, I, I felt that way in a couple of stats classes until you end up starting to, you know, I, oh, hey, like I've collected, you know, you've just worked your ass off for X amount of months yeah. out in some random place and you've collected all this data, but if it, but that doesn't serve you unless you know how to analyze it right like but like in the there's a very regimented way to analyze it like you need one would hope yeah because yeah. that's that's the difference between like you could have wasted all your time if you didn't get the right sample size yeah it's the thing the thing that's frustrating is that no one really knows and <laughs> um every like phd student that i talk to 
um, is we've got this imposter syndrome type thing where you think that we shouldn't be where we are and we've somehow cheated and, you know, like schmoozed our way to where we are. But that for me, and I think for a lot of PhD students is biggest in stats because you could be so, it's, it's happened to me. I could be so confident that the statistics that I'm using to answer this question are correct. And then I'll read one paper that is kind of contrary to that, and then I just lose all of my confidence. Yeah. It's all gone, and it's like, where where, where did that go? Yeah. Because I just, I just, it's 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 stats is just one of these things. It's just so hard to wrap your brain around because it's fancy math, and depending on how you want to answer a question, some people would say, oh, well, did you use the Poisson distribution or did you use the negative binomial distribution or what about this thing? And basically, you can plug in those different distributions or whatever. Yeah. Basically. You can plug in these different little things and you get pretty much the same answer unless you don't. You, you would hope that there's a hard and fast answer for, for, to, to, um, to answer these questions. Um, and the higher up you go, the more it's not. And so you just kind of not wing it, but you, it, it's awesome to have people around you that know stats really well. And so right. I would love to be one of those people where I could just sit in the matrix chair and be like, Brrr. I know statistics, like, and you'd know what statistic to use in what situation and know all the answers. And when someone says, well, why did you do it this way? I would love to say, like, because of this. How amazing would it be if you got to the point where you were so skilled in your statistics knowledge that you didn't really need to consult other people, at least not uh, officially? Uh, you could just know that in the field this will be sufficient to prove this point. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that sounds like it'd be pretty useful. Oh my God, I'd love that. Like the amount of times even Mike, that I look back. So for example, right now, I've just gotten a paper back from review, which happened four months ago. So it was statistics that I was literally working on four months ago. And I'm looking at the statistics now. I'm going, why the hell did I do this? Yeah. And I know it's right, but like it, it's still just not in there. That it's like, oh, this is 100% the reason why I did this. It'll take me, I'll, I'll read a little bit and say, oh, okay, that makes sense, you know. Yeah. But I still am not confident feeling like, oh, like, oh, shit, did I, did I do that incorrectly? Like, So I'm going to put you on the spot. Have you actually uh, tried learning more stats in terms of taking classes, online courses, or something like that? Yeah, no, I, I, um, I've taken... I've taken some classes, and at this point now, um, what I've found is that if I don't know how to do um, a certain statistical test and it's not fundamental to the stuff that I'm doing, yeah. um, oftentimes one of my co-authors might do that or, or I'm able to delegate that off to someone else yeah. because now you got to look at it. You should always be learning how to do sure. new things, but is it really worth your time to spend two, two weeks kind of getting the basics of this thing or you spend two hours with a statistician who knows it you know that's what i find kind of funny about phds is you go study for four years or more or three years or more to learn so much about one tiny little point of knowledge absolutely uh, that you learn an incredible amount but you learn an incredible amount about a tiny slice of life yeah i mean it's probably fair to say you know more about the hibernation of bats than I'd say anybody in this library, or I mean, maybe well, everyone on this yeah, city block. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd, and I'd, I'd say because Corey is, because Corey's in uh, the US, so I could say pretty confidently that I know more about New Zealand bat hibernation than anyone in the country. 
type of thing. Like, so like that's really specific. And actually, because yeah. Cor- like Corey probably knows more about New Zealand bats. Corey was a guy who uh, was doing a PhD before me. He's in uh, in Boise right now. But yeah, Corey never did hibernation stuff. So I could probably confidently say that in North America, I know the most about. And that's not me t- pumping my tires because who the fuck cares? It's just like, it's just bat specialized. Yeah, exactly. I know. Uh, yeah, how bats in New Zealand hibernate. Like, so I mean, that's awesome. And but you can't get to that point. If you're also getting pretty good at stats, I think is the tricky part. Sure. Unless you're, you know, you're just naturally gifted. Yeah. And I think what what I was lucky enough with was that um, I think what's really good about doing a master's, because you have oftentimes you have an opportunity to go from doing an honors uh, straight into PhD and not do a master's or or you do a master's and then a year into it, they upgrade it to um, PhD level, um, which is a thing that you can do at the University of Calgary, Dalhousie. So, oh, yeah, you got a pretty good uh, master's thesis here. Would you like to turn it into a PhD? And you're like, yeah, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> and so I, I didn't do that. I did the whole two and a half years doing a master's. Did you get asked if you wanted to turn it into a PhD? No, no. I was too dumb. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Winnipeg had that. I don't think the University of Winnipeg had that. Um, but, like, thank God I didn't because yeah. it, it – that it's kind of like a stepping stone, you know, yeah. or a st- like you're trying to run up a flight of stairs. If you're trying to do it three stairs at a time, the chances of you tripping and falling are, are much higher than if you just go step by step by step by step by step. It takes longer. It's like the, the stats that I've been using in New Zealand were I had already done uh, or already used or, you know, kind of gone through during my master's. So that, that kind of preliminary learning about them, learning how they work and stuff, and that basis was already there, and so then I was able <clears throat> just to um, just to build on that. So I think that's a that's a benefit. So this lab in South Africa that you're going to now is this uh, a new thing, or has this been there a while uh, since you, before you arrived? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's established. So Andrew Andrew's been there. He's like a, you know associate professor at the University of Pretoria. He's been there forever. He's the I think he's like the ecophysiology chair for the National National Research Foundation over there. So he's an established dude. He's like excellent science. He's got just 15 years. He just just got 15 years of funding. So he's going to be there like long after I'm gone. That's how rare like how big of a deal I've is 15 se- years. I've never seen it before in my life. Cuz you can like I mean all this stuff that you'd be like, "Oh, I can't do this project cuz it's too long term and the scope of it is difficult to sell." Yeah. Man, 15 years, dude. It's it's crazy. Like um I mean, Southern Africa is kind of one of the spots where climate change is going to hit. Um, but yeah, I, I tell, you know, some of my science people, like, you know, older science people, you know, established professors. And I say, oh, yeah, Andrew's got 15 years of funding. And so the professor's like, 15 years? Like, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's great. I think it's five, I think it's three five-year terms yeah. um, with options to renew. So unless he doesn't, or unless I don't, like, massively mess up yeah. his stuff, he should be, should be fine, you know? So what are you uh, looking to get out of South Africa? What uh, what are you working on there? What's what are you bringing to the table? Yeah, so looking at instead of like how because um, basically in the masters in the in the PhD was looking at how how bats hibernate and how bats go cold, how they deal with cold temperatures. So now um, kind of the flip side of that, like how to how do bats um, deal with um, being real hot? So yeah. some of these bats in Southern Africa can deal with you know 50 degree temperatures for a couple hours you don't get those temperatures in new zealand oh 50 no 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 i mean like you'd get you know up into the high 30s maybe maybe is there any like huge differences between south africa bats and new zealand bats that you're already aware of other than that there's more i think southern africa has got like 300 not not just south africa but like southern africa has got i think 365 species of bat whereas new zealand's got two 
Have you ever been freaked out by a bet? Yes. Like uh, not just like a surprise yeah, scare. Yeah, 100%. About, like... Yeah, no. Um, I remember when I was dealing with vampire bats, they were like some of the gnarliest things that I'd ever seen in my life. I was dealing with like, you know, little 12 gram friendly little guys. They'd bite you, of course, but yeah. like it's like a friendly bite. You do you know? have rabies shots? I, gotta... I do have rabies okay. shots. Yeah, yeah just, so I, I actually, so get this, uh, I tried to get uh, a booster because I'm going to South Africa and I haven't had a booster in a couple of years and there's a nationwide shortage in Canada oh, right shit. now. So I couldn't actually get a booster. So I oh. got to wait to go to Africa and then get a rabies shot. So, ooh. Uh, <laughs> vampire bats. But yeah, vampire yeah. bats, you know, they're like, I don't know, they're, I think they're like 45 grams, I want to say. 30 to 45 grams. So it's like quite big. But like, they're like, they're not a dense creature. So 45 grams is like, to me, that doesn't sound like a lot of mass, but it's like, it's like the size of your phone, you know, okay. like in, in terms of like height kind of thing. Like of body height? To, of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, maybe a bit smaller than that. You know, it's like you can hold it in your hand and its little legs and its little head will come out of your, the grip of your hand. But they're like way stronger than you expect and they make the gnarliest sound. Like, I'm not going to, but it's just like, they're, they're they're terrifying creatures, and so you're holding it and it's <laughs> and you're like, oh. and because it like crawls around on the ground all the time. And Is that like, like an elbow walk? Is not that... it, on its uh, thumbs, on its wrists, yeah. kind of thing. So it walks around like that. Um, we've got a cool video, and you like watch them run, yeah. and it's like someone running with crutches. So imagine if you had crutches, and then you put the crutches down, and then swing your legs in front, and then put the crutches down, and then swing. That's kind of how they run. But anyway, they'll go after cows and like, you know, drink the blood of the cow on its on its foot or whatever, right? What other animals consume blood for like, like digestion? Mammals, I think it's just the vampire bats. I think there's like two species of bat that actually there's like Desmodus, which is the classic vampire bat. And then I think there might be another one, but don't quote me on that. Is that uh like a good thing evolutionarily? Like is that like, oh, that's a good reliable source of food and it's like calorie rich not really bro yeah. because it's like you got to think of it like there's not a lot of things that eat blood because basically like what happens is the, the the vampire bat bites onto the cow and it cuts it and it's got anticoagulants so the blood's coming into it but then it immediately starts peeing because the volume of liquid wow. that it requires to get all the plasma and and all the the yummy bits in your blood right all of that other is just liquid. The amount of volume that it needs is unsustainable for it to get. So it basically latches onto you, starts peeing and drinking. And so it's just like kind of a hose. It's, it, the animal's basically a filter at that point. And so it kind of gets rid of that whole like sexy vampire idea. What a terrible experience for the, uh, for the victim. Yeah. To get simultaneously blood sucked and urinated on. Yeah. Well, usually the cow is like asleep. You know, uh, they're in down in the bottom of South Africa or South America. I think in like Argentina, they go after penguins and stuff. And the penguins are a little bit more vigilant, but they these little bats come. But anyway, the uh, the point of it is like you know they've got gnarly teeth, and um, they they're scary sounding, and they look like they got hit in the face with a frying pan. They got like this ugly, scary bat face. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a guy who studies bats, I'm like, eh, you're not the prettiest. Um, and uh, so anyway, because they're on the ground, they, um, they got to take off from the ground all the time. So they basically, it's just like they're in the gym every day hitting the bench press, you know? And they're just every day bench pressing, bench pressing, bench pressing. So when you're holding this animal, you look at it and you're like, okay, you should be about this strong. And then it's like, no, bro, boom. And it like busts out of your hands because it's so strong. But like from a closed grip. Yeah, dude, I'm holding wow. it. And you just like think and you're like, oh, yeah, this is about how strong a sized animal of this yeah, should yeah. be, you know? And it's like, no, I'm massively stronger than that. And it's just 
busts out. And the first the first day that I was in Belize, the first night I was in Belize, I was working with um, some people who'd been working with bats for years and years and years and years. He gets bit by this vampire bat, and uh, he's bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. I'm looking at his hand, and it looks like he's been cut open, like just cut open. He's leaking, you know what I mean? And... Um, I'm like, holy shit, like, what do we do? Like, we get the first aid kit, like, you know, and he just kind of takes the handkerchief off and he, he wipes his hand off and he looks at it and you can't even see where the where the yeah. cut is because their teeth are so fine and so sharp, yeah. but the anticoagulant makes it so bleed, uh, bleed, yeah. bleed. So you can't even see it, and but it looks like he's just been cut open. And so I'm kind of freaking out, you know, and this guy's been studying bats for maybe 30, 40 years, you know, middle of the night, just like gets the blood on his finger, Wipes it underneath one eye, wipes it underneath the other, like a football-looking yeah. thing. And he's just like, let's get some more bats. And I was like, holy shit. This is gnarly. All right, Zenon, that's where we have to close it off. If you happen to be like me and find all this stuff pretty fascinating, you might want to listen to Zenon Part 2, where we talk about the crazy wildlife in New Zealand, the fragility of certain ecosystems, and why any of us should care. My name is Enchenzi, and we'll continue this next week.